Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The preacher may as well have said, all is futility, all is impermanence, all is a vapor. All is for naught. The whole thing is meaningless. In fact, the Greek word for vanity can be translated into English as vapor, something that is fleeting. And who is the preacher? This preacher who announces these bedrock, uncomfortable words. And the first verse of Ecclesiastes gives us his identity. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. The preacher is Solomon, known for his wisdom. And in the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says of the preacher, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find pleasing words, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. For you see, Solomon also wrote the book of Proverbs. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher proceeds from the point of view of a skeptic or a secular person who does not take into account the higher things of God. Sometimes, though, he abandons that secular point of view and brings up, when he brings up God as creator and sovereign, as he does in this following verse. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart. And yet, he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. However, for much of Ecclesiastes, the preacher gives witness to the experiences of futility and meaninglessness in our world. He talks about our attempts to make something significant in our lives, only to realize that none of it is permanent and nothing is ever certain or truly secure. He contends that we all die, whether wise or foolish, winners or losers, courageous or cowardly, moral or immoral. We all go down to Sheol, and the memory of us eventually dies out. Nothing under the sun is really new. We never learn. We repeat the same mistakes. But those who are endowed with even a modicum of wisdom come to understand that something ultimate is missing, for God put eternity in our hearts. That is the preacher's point. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toils of my labors under the sun, because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. Know that the preacher never equates wisdom with foolishness, nor puts goodness on par with evil. But if death is the end of everything, and there is nothing or no being there in the end to choose between what was good and what was evil, 
then all would really be for naught, and all really would be meaningless, and all would be futile, which is what the logical conclusion of one who was truly a secular person would be. And this is the stunning revelation that the preacher, who was a man of faith, had to address before the conclusion of the book. Now, in the Gospel, Jesus tells a parable about a rich farmer who puts his trust in the abundant crops and possessions for his security in the good life. Jesus calls this rich farmer a fool because that term fool was used at that time for one who lived without regard for God or who rebelled openly against God. The man was selfish. He did not comport himself rightly in respect to his possessions. He hoarded the bumper crop instead of putting it on the market. He built new barns, tearing down the old ones, even without the benefit of a sale from that year's produce. He was rich, so much so that he would use the new barns to store not only his agricultural products, but his possessions as well. His refusal to sell grain that year meant that he could get a higher price when the growing conditions were less generous. All this made his neighbors more dependent upon him, and it gave him power over them. The folks would have to pay more for their food, but so be it. He felt no responsibility for his subsistence living neighbors. He never, it never entered his mind that possession and life's are gifts from God, which are meant to be shared with others. Obviously, love thy neighbor and social justice were not part of his understanding. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Jesus goes on after that to tell his disciples and the gathered crowd that there was no reason for the anxiety and worry that comes with seeking the needs of life. He tells them that instead to first seek the kingdom of God and the rest will be granted by a loving and caring father. And remember, prior to this, the disciples were taught how to pray for these things. And in contrast to the rich farmer, many of the people in that crowd no doubt were barely getting by. They were, duly, they were unduly taxed, and they had no hope for an easier existence. And Jesus' words offered solace and hope for a meaningful and blessed life. And by the way, the young man who wanted Jesus to intervene concerning the family inheritance most likely was concerned about his social standing in the community for the craving for advanced social standing is another form of greed. Without that inheritance, he would not enjoy the privileges and honor landowners had within the Palestinian economy and throughout the empire. But was he rich towards God? I like that phrase, rich towards God. But what does it really mean? And how does it fit into seeking the kingdom of God? Think of the kingdom of God as the reign of God in our personal lives, in the church, and in our communities. 
and it will be fully realized at Christ's second coming when all things will be reconciled to God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And there will be a radical overturning of the present order, which is expressed by Jesus, that the first will be last and the last will be first, and sinners and prostitutes are going into the kingdom before the religious leaders. When that kingdom of God is fully realized, God's eternal rule and power will be over all things which have been made new. But presently, the kingdom in this life is in his followers who live rich lives towards God. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, gives us a glimpse of what it means to live rich towards God. In essence, it is Christ in us and us in Christ. The mystery begins when, through the Spirit's prompting, we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior over our lives. It is when we make the decision to repent of the old life and turn towards God to the new. And that decision can happen, for example, after we read a pamphlet about salvation or when we respond to an altar call or when we decide to live into our baptism and decide to be confirmed. And at that point, we become justified because the Father takes Christ's righteousness in our stead. His righteousness covers us, and we are regenerated as new creatures. And the Father does not see our sinful selves anymore, but rather he sees the righteousness that is Christ. Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians because a form of heresy was spreading in the cities of the Lycus Valley, where Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis were located in Asia Minor. And the heresy obscured the clarity of the gospel of Christ. And Paul was anxious for the Colossians to always remember who Christ was, the Lord of all, the Lord over creation, and even the invisible realm. And Paul reminded them that they are called to grow in maturity in Christ by cooperating with the Holy Spirit to get rid of sinful habits and to cultivate Christian virtues. He wrote, So then if you were raised in Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ is, seated at God's right hand, set your minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested in glory with him. This whole process of becoming renewed after the Creator's image is hard work. It is called sanctification because it is the Holy Spirit's work in us to become more like Christ and to pick and to participate in the life of God. It's not our doing good works for merit, because we have already been justified. It would be nice if when we accept Christ in our lives, that immediately all our thoughts, words, and deeds would immediately match up to our imputed righteousness, but it doesn't work that way. Sometimes we have to struggle with the old nature, because we still live in this sinful world. Our sinful propensities are difficult to shake. It takes a lot of focus and prayer, participation in the Eucharist, 
and in Bible studies and encouragement of the church to change. But you know what? We do. Over time, those things that enthralled us no longer even interest us anymore. That's the Spirit's work in our lives. And sometimes we fail, but the promise still stands. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And oh, what gratitude this should afford us. And then some folks need to be reconciled because they've been hurt through no fault of their own. Perhaps they had abusive people in their lives who did untoward damage to their esteem. There, too, we have the Lord's healing and wholeness available to us because the Spirit works in mysterious ways. As a social worker, I once took a teenage boy under my wing. He had been difficult with his parents, didn't like his stepfather, and he acted out. One day in the juvenile justice court, his mother announced to the judge that she was in no way taking him home. So we had another teenager who was going to be raised in foster care. And it didn't look like there was any prospective adopted home for this kid. So my thoughts were that I could help reconcile Sean with his family. So one day, I drove out to the home only to find that his mom, his stepfather, and his little sister had moved away. And they did not let us know where they went. And Sean was devastated. So I always gave him special time, lunch, maybe a movie, trips to the mall of a skate park. But you know what? He remained difficult for a long time. Once he ran away from his group home, was gone two whole months until he called me from Lake County wanting a ride back to my office. And as I drove down the turnpike, he informed me that he did not call me to get a lecture in the car. And I told him I was delighted that he was a captive audience. He was adept at getting kicked out of group homes, which made it difficult to give him stability. One time he told me that he was going to terrorize the new placement over the weekend. He did not want that particular group home, but I had no choice in that he was being discharged again from juvenile justice for another bad moment when he built a small fire behind the house where he had been living. Like I said, he was difficult at times. And he did what he said. The staff locked themselves in the office and called the sheriff. Again, I found myself in court trying to keep him from being adjudicated delinquent. And finally, the judge looked sternly at both of us. And he told Sean that the last chance, that would be the last chance that he was ever going to get. Next time he was in big trouble, that he would be adjudicated and sent to a delinquency placement. And on the way back to my office, he told me that he really wasn't going to harm anybody in that group home. And I replied that they didn't know that. And then one Monday morning, months later, he called me to tell me that he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. His new group home parents had been taking him to church. And I'll tell you, I was stunned. The Lord had not forgiven this, had not forgotten this boy in his hurts and in his grief. And the young man grew in grace. And over time... I mean, he did grow in grace over time, but not without the efforts 
of a new Christian. And finally, Paul writes in verse 11, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Yes, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The Christ who lives in each person binds us all together. It's a great privilege to be one of the Lord's own, to be part of the kingdom. Our duty is to love God and to love our neighbor as Christ loved us. And the best way to express that love for others is to introduce them to the kingdom of God. We are here to enlarge the kingdom, to bring others in. And that's how we bless the Lord the most. And the preacher continued, or I should say the preacher concluded his book with the words, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. And to fear God and keep his commandments takes faith, which Solomon, with all his strengths and weaknesses, had. And it's a good thing, too, that there's a judgment. It means that the universe is not indifferent and meaningless. That good does matter. There is indeed a God who cares and whose properties are justice and mercy and steadfast love. A God who is the creator and sustainer of everything under the sun. And judgment will bring no fear to those who are in Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, within the people of Christ, they will be reproduced in Christ's likeness increasingly. They will have been living rich towards God.